Well, let's call it to order, shall we? <clears throat> if people come in, they'll just they'll just come in, won't they? It's good to see you all. Uh, we're excited about being here, Shirley and I. And uh, I'll be sharing some. She'll be sharing some. Then at one o'clock or right after lunch, whenever that is. We were going to have a panel of three couples that uh, would have how many years? 100 and 172 total years of marriage. But one couple called last night and she is sick, so we're going to have to cut out 76 years or 56 years of those. So. We want you to think about questions you might have. So that uh, after lunch, it's just going to be kind of a question-answer time for a while. And uh, I'm not saying that you'll always get the best answer. The two couples that will be here, Shirley and I will be one, and Gary and Beverly Price. I don't know if some of you know them, I'm sure. And uh, when Shirley's asked, how did we stay together that long? Tell them what you answer, how you answer. One of us didn't happen to die, and we haven't killed each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of by the grace of God. We don't come to you today as experts. Don't look at it that way. But hopefully, we'll be able to present some things that might challenge you, might get you to thinking help you in your marriage, come on in. We just started. We were just waiting for you. See? How about getting a name tag there? Write your name on it. And here's two chairs up here if you'd like. Always good to have a grand entrance. Yeah, <laughs> we had everybody going to bat, everybody going different directions. All the kids' baseball yeah. game. Yeah. <laughs> but we're trusting the Lord that some things will be discussed today that will help you. If you are married, it'll help you in your marriage. If you're not married, it'll help you as you relate to other people who are. So uh, it's not authoritative. Keep that in mind. Okay? It's not thus saith the Lord unless we get it out of the Word. Alright? But we'll share some things that have been helpful to us through the years. Fair enough? Let's pray. And uh, most of you may know this, but Gary's dad died uh, three mornings ago, I believe it was down in Louisiana. So uh, he will be there this Sunday and the service is Monday. So be praying for him. For, for Gary as he preaches. Yeah. 
And there will be some in the family who don't know Jesus. So just pray for him, if you would. In Louisiana. In Louisiana. Bozier City, Louisiana is where the service will be on Monday. Any other prayer needs that we ought to lift up today? Sick kids? Anybody got sick kids? Okay. You've got some sick kids, yeah. Okay. We have three kids up here. Pardon? We have three kids with earaches. Okay. Well, let's just pray against earaches. Is that all right? Now, why don't we bow our heads, or if you want to keep your eyes open, it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say you have to shut your eyes to pray. Jobs, too. Jobs, okay. How many of you need jobs? Okay, three of you need jobs. Good. All right. Two or three or four of you, as you feel God leading, just pray, would you? Praise the Lord together and pray for these needs. job situation and you're our provider yes and I just pray for especially during these times when there's it's kind of a sink or swim time and the economy's going through times and some jobs are scarce so I just pray yeah. you make a way you help us to trust you and see your provision see how you're out of the box thinking sometimes you go a different mm. way than we're thinking just help us to be open to your way and your leading yeah. your families help us to just use our resources and be better prepared for that and just guide us and give us wisdom and choices to make and open our hands over yeah. any jobs and need provision. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I lift up Pastor Gary to you, Lord. Minister to his heart. Um, Give him joy. Um, give their family joy and all the loved ones of his father, Lord, that he would comfort them. And, Lord, let beauty rise out of the ashes and yes. let uh, let many be saved and um, brought, brought to you, Lord. Just anoint Pastor Gary as he um, preaches and uh, give him uh, words of wisdom and revelation as he shares, Lord, and uh, Lord, I just pray for open hearts, Lord, that the people at the funeral would have open hearts if there are any unsaved, that they would um, really mm. think about life and death and the seriousness of it, and that they would come to know you, and that um, and that those that are grieving, Lord, that you would just be their comfort and their strength, and mm-hmm. be their hope. That, that this is not the, the last stop Lord, yeah. That, yeah. and then let them just cherish the memories that they've had with him and have a spirit of thank, thanksgiving in Jesus name yes thank Amen. you Lord thank you Lord thank you Lord and Lord I pray for healing for those little ones uh, touch those ears uh, do whatever needs to be done Lord to bring healing and wholeness to them Thank you, Father. Lord, we put this time in your hands today. We ask for an unusual sense of your presence as we share together. I just ask, Father, that each one of our hearts would be open, you'd give us understanding, and that together we will all feel like it'll be a profitable time. It's yours, 
you take it and use it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see two more here. Let's see, you're all by yourself. Is, is that all right? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> well, for you, three or four that came in after Shirley shared how we've stayed together so long, tell them again, would you? Well, we praise the Lord for. It's been a hard week, hard week and a half. Shirley was in the hospital for several days right after Christmas, and they've got her on some other medicine now, and it seems to be doing all right. And then I don't know uh, how many of you know uh, Blake and Nina Brocado. Anybody know them? Some of you do. Uh, Nina's 28-year-old son died um, a week ago Friday. last night. A week ago last night, wasn't it? I got a call about 11.15, and uh, he had taken an overdose of drugs. He's been in rehab several times. Got two little kids, five and three. He and his wife were separated. So uh, it's been a tough week. I had the funeral yesterday, and uh, I tried to preach the gospel. But you might just pray for the brocados, because they're going through some hard times right now. A lot of anger in the extended family. Uh, it's too bad that many times crises like this uh, bring that out. So just pray for peace, would you? That's what I preached on yesterday. Was uh, Jesus says, My peace I give unto you. Thank you, Lord. Well, all right. Here's what we'd like to do. Let's first talk about how God started the whole thing of marriage. Uh, as you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that He put it together in the beginning. Uh, secondly, we want to talk about you don't have to fail in a marriage. You can, but you don't have to. That makes sense? You can, but you don't have to. And then, uh, I've already shared most of you that uh, after lunch we'll have kind of a question-answer time. The one couple, Fred and Gail Arnold, will not be here because Gail is sick, I found out last night. So uh, we'll take a few, few of those years away from the total years of marriage. And then uh, the last hour, we want to let the Holy Spirit do whatever He'd like to in our lives. Is that all right? That's a wide open door, isn't it? Fair enough? Now we should have some writing material, I think. Oh, here How many of you are married now? How many of you have been married? Okay. Let me ask you this question. When you got married, <clears throat> way back in your thinking, come in. 
way back in your thinking was there the idea now nah, if this doesn't work um, there's always a back door there's always an out would you like to get a name tag ladies and I'll bring you back or Russell come here would you please Huh? Oh, longer than yours, huh? <clears throat> How many of you, as you were planning to get married, there was way back in your thinking, well, if it doesn't work, uh, there's always an out. How many of you had that in your thinking? Anybody? Well, praise the Lord. How many after the first year you had that, maybe? You'd be surprised how many people come into marriage today with the idea, now they never say it, but maybe it's because their parents have been divorced or they've seen good friends be divorced that if it doesn't work out, then there's always a back door. We feel like you need to start out with the idea there is no back door. There is no out of this marriage except murder <laughs> or dying. Fair enough? Now, what happens if you begin that way? We want this to be kind of a sharing time once in a while here. What happens if you enter into marriage with that idea? I think you planted the seed for a future divorce if you do that. Okay. You're not committed. Okay. You're planning for failure. You're pla okay. I like planning for failure. Future divorce. Yeah. We talk a lot in when people come and see me about the curses that come down through a generational line we're going to talk about that the second session here a little bit but uh, when you enter into marriage with the idea that maybe there's a way out be careful because the enemy likes to take some of those things and bring them to reality does that make sense so be very careful turn with me would you to Genesis chapter 1 Verse 27, and somebody read that. If you didn't bring your Bible, just listen, okay? <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 27. Somebody read that out loud, would you please? Anybody there? Just... And God created man in his own image. In the image of God who created them, him. Male and female, he created them. Alright. Here's the beginning. God created male and female. Now go to chapter 2. And see what happens in chapter 2. You know the creation story pretty much is bound up in Genesis 1 and 2. But to come to 2, it takes what was just said, what Kay just read and sort of broadens it out. How did that come into being? Uh, look at uh, verse 15. Somebody read verse 15 in chapter 2, would you please? Okay. 
Go ahead with the next verse. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. Alright, now, here it is, man. One entity. And God is saying to him or her, it. Shall we call it it? Is that alright for now? I'll tell you what we're going to change it to though in a little bit. Alright? God says to it, don't do this. Don't eat of this fruit. You can have everything else in the garden, but this one thing I'm going to reserve for myself. Somebody read verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Ah! Here comes on the scene now a little bit more of God's plan being revealed, isn't it? Verse 19 through the whole verse of 19 says he, he told him to take care of the things and give them names and so forth. Somebody read verse 20, please. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Ah, somebody misquoted God. How many of your Bibles have a footnote on Adam? Why? It ain't Adam yet. It's man. Right? I'm not a very good artist, but uh, see if you can picture this with me. There's female characteristics and there's male characteristics. But this is man. Isn't it? Okay. That's why they put in a footnote there. What's the footnote say? Or the man. Man. It should be man, folks. Because as yet, God's plan had not been fulfilled to bring about another entity. Okay? For, for the man, no suitable helper was found. So then God performed some surgery. And isn't it neat the way he did? He took out of the man somewhere, and he made another entity. And so he still had the one, right? But he called it Adam later on. In, in chapter chapter 3 it talks about Adam and also Eve. So here's one entity has female characteristics and one has male characteristics. Right? You, you with me? Okay, now, somebody read that next verse. Verse uh, 20, 24. No, no, 25, 23, excuse me. Somebody read 23. I don't believe that's what he said. I think when God brought this woman on the scene, he, the man said, Wow, man! Now come on. <laughs> Go with me, will you? The only thing the man, the only, what? They still do that today. They do. The only thing the man had to relate to up to this point were animals. And those animals maybe could come and lick his face and lick his hand, but he, they could not respond to him, could they? 
other than that. Uh, you know, you can pat your dog and he can come and just looks almost, acts almost like human sometimes, but he can't respond to you like another entity, another human being. Here this woman now was brought before Adam. Wow. Now somebody read verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Somebody explain what that means, would you? For this reason. What, what's he talking about? Marriage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Get a little more specific. What? For this reason. What does he mean by that? Now, he's talking about marriage, as we'll see later, but... You see, built up in each one of these entities now was the desire to be back as close to this as they were at one time. Okay? This one entity had both male and female characteristics. God split it apart, did surgery and split it apart, and then He says, now, for this reason, they're going to want to come back together and become one flesh again. Isn't that neat? Uh, that's supposed to be close. So that in the two entities, as you come back together, there's not supposed to be too much individuality. Now, sometimes women really get after me for saying that. But isn't it neat when a couple really is becoming one flesh. Uh, the wife can finish the husband's sentences. The husband can know what the wife's thinking and carry it out. Is that right or not? The becoming one flesh is so important. Many marriages that come to me are like this. I think we're about out of here. They're very divided. Oh, they live together. They maybe have kids with the same last name. But basically, they're not one flesh. What would you say it means to be one flesh? How would you explain that? I would think of it like if you're, no matter what happens, like one of your hands, you wouldn't want to cut it off. You'd want it to get better or you just you'd make the best of whatever it is. Okay. Anyone else? I think it means that, that you approach life as a team rather than an individual. Okay. Okay. Go back to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, some of your translations say, I'll make a helpmate. Come in. I'll make a helpmate. You see, God wants both man and woman to be a team. Praise the Lord. And if they're, as they're working as a team, then their lives are becoming more and more meshed together like this. Now, every one of us know people that are like that, don't we? But we also know people that are not like that. They're more like this. I think God's plan for marriage is this. 
In verse 24, he says, his plan is that they come together and become one flesh. Somebody read the last verse in that chapter, would you please? Man and his wife are both Wow. Is that what that really said? What do you suppose that means? That they're totally exposed. They were totally exposed. Every thought, there were no secrets. They were able to share, able to respond to each other. Uh, wow. I don't think it just means they didn't have any clothes on. Uh, they knew each other's heart. Many times, that's one of the big problems in marriage. I'm not willing to let you know my heart. I'm not willing to open it up. I've been hurt so much in the past and it's closed up. And you're going to have a hard time prying it open. Now some of you know people like that, don't you? We're going to talk about that in the next session, next hour, okay? How many of you, maybe, maybe you guys relate to this better than the women do. I'm kind of an avid football player. How many times this year alone have you heard the coaches say, we have to play as a team, we must lose this I mentality. It's all for the good of the team. And that's what this, you know, we were irrelevant. Christians in the Bible, you know, they didn't mean anything anymore. And yet you start looking at what people are saying and they're going back right to Scripture. They just don't know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lose the eye effect and work for the team. And that's what marriage is. Lose the eye. Let me ask you another question here, and, and this is not in judgment in any way. Please don't misunderstand me, okay? How many of you have been married and divorced? Okay. Uh, Shirley and I have gone through a lot of, with a lot of people, the pain and the hurt of divorce. I'm so glad that we've never come to that, praise the Lord. But we have friends and, and we've helped minister to people who have come to that. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says God hates divorce? Now again, if you've been divorced, please don't look at this as a judgment. Please. But the reason it says God hates divorce is because it doesn't only hurt the husband and the wife. It carries on to every member of that family, no matter how far out there it is. It carries out to the friends. And God knows none of us are big enough to handle that very well. So uh, God planned that there be no back door. Turn to Ephesians 5, would you please? Someone read, begin to read on verse uh, 21. Read just verse 21, would you please, somebody? Verse, chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay. 
Somebody else read verse 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. Go ahead with verse 24 also, please. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Okay, somebody pick up at 25 and read through verse 27. Or 28. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up with her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or regal or any blemish, but holy and loveless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Okay. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <clears throat> How many of you have heard sermons on this? A few. A few. Where, most of the time, does the preacher start? What? Verse 20. Ah. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, most of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but when this is preached in a local church or over the radio, more than not, the pastor will start with, with wives, submit to your husbands. That's not where it starts. It starts with verse 21 which says submit to one another because you love Jesus. Now what happens if you start there? Somebody? It changes everything. Changes everything, doesn't it? What happens if you start with verse 24 or 22? Wives submit to your husbands. It's dependent on one person. Okay, dependent on one person plus it's Sharia law. It's what? Sharia law. Okay, okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? The man's first. Why, right. if you, you get behind me, you get under me. Okay? When it starts with verse 22, it's saying, You are the key to my marriage. But that's not it at all, is it? When you start with 21, it's now, because I love Jesus. Because I've given my life to Jesus, I want to submit to you as a wife. And we'll come in with the husbands here in a moment. Uh, In verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then you can put the whole job description together. Here's what the wife is to do. Here's what the husband is to do. But they do it because of verse 21. Because I'm submitted to Christ. Because I love Jesus with all my heart. Because I've asked Him to come and be my Lord and Savior and help me in every area of life. Because of that, wives, you can submit to your husbands. Husbands, you can love your wives. Let's go to husbands first. Fellas, whether you like it or not, we have the biggest load. Did you know that? Did you know that? Husbands, love your wives how much? Wow. 
My goodness sakes. As Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? Die for it? What else? Okay. He just gave himself up for it, didn't he? Every one of us, as we've accepted Jesus into our lives, we did so because he gave his life so that I might have life. How many husbands do you know who are giving their lives so that there might be life between that husband and wife? Uh, I don't know too many sometimes. Most of the people who come to see me don't, aren't there yet. We hope by the time they leave they are. Now, what does it mean, fellas, to love your wives so completely as Christ loved the church? How would you define that? Unconditionally. Unconditionally? What does that mean? How would you define unconditionally? It doesn't depend on what the other person does. Ooh. You've been reading my notes. <laughs> Unconditional love does not depend on the response of the one loved, does it? I preached that yesterday at that funeral. Unconditional love does not depend on the response of your wife, fellas, whether you like it or not. Now, boy, that's a tough thing for some men to swallow. And we're going to talk next session as to why it is. But God's plan is that a husband so love that wife that she is being built up on a pedestal and she feels like, boy, I'm the most important thing in his life. He's got me right up there in the clouds. He thinks I'm special. Uh, I may not think I'm very beautiful, but as far as he's concerned, I'm the most beautiful thing in the world to him. Now, I'm going to ask a question. You don't need to hold up your hand. Okay, but I want you to ask, answer, answer it in your heart. You wives here today, do you feel that way? Don't hold your hand up, okay? Because I don't want us husbands to feel bad yet. Husbands, we've got a big job, but aren't we glad that God's grace is sufficient for us? Because of His love for us, we have a model of what our love then ought to be for our wife. So completely loving her, so completely committed to her, that the only thing we can compare it to is the same way that Jesus loves the church. Now, husband, I'm going to preach to you, man. Is that all right? I hope within the next few months, now let's make it less than that, next few weeks, that your wife begins to feel adored, begins to feel like you're putting her on that pedestal. You're making sure that she knows that she's the most important thing in your life. There may be financial problems, there may be other kinds of problems, job or what have you. But as far as you're concerned, you're showing her in every way you know how. And if you don't know how, in some ways you're learning. You're showing her that she's your, your special bride. And uh, nothing is more important to you than she is, except Jesus. What would happen, wives, if you all felt that? You're motivated to do the 
Okay. Motivated to please him. What else? Pardon? You trust him. You can trust him. Or peace and joy. You feel safe. Your yeah. kids will learn from that. So that when they find somebody they think they ought to be married to, they've got a model. Anybody else? <laughs> feel like your sacrifices are worthwhile. Feel like your sacrifices are worthwhile. Will you look at it as a sacrifice? Probably not, will you? It's just becoming a way of life. Now, I hope if you learn nothing else, husbands, that you believe that Jesus wants you to show your wife beyond any doubt that she's the most important thing in your life and you're going to spend the rest of your life with her building her up, putting her on that pedestal. If you go out of here today with that idea and the belief that Jesus is sufficient to help you to do it, you're going to have a beautiful marriage more than 56 years. Okay? I have just been sitting here thinking about what I've heard about the difference between religion and Christianity. <laughs> and someone said that religion is something you do because you have to Christianity is done because you want to. That's good. If you look at what you're doing for your husband or wife in the same way. You find there between a burden and a joy. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Now, wives, I'm going to ask you a question. Is it easier to submit to your husband if you're feeling that you're the most precious thing in his life? Is it easier to submit to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's joy. Will there be arguments? Oh, probably once in a while. But it's not going to get rough. It's not going to be divisive. Because you're committed, husbands. Husbands, I'm really preaching to you right now. Okay? Please hear me. I've been, I've been a husband for a few years. And I've not always been right. But I've learned the last few years that it's only as we love our wives unconditionally, regardless of how she responds, uh, only then is there going to be peace in your home. Fair enough? Would you accept that, sir? All right, let's go a little further. Uh, Go back to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, I think it's probably one of the clearest passages as to how to live in a marriage relationship. Especially verses 1 through, oh, 21 probably. I'll go the whole chapter. It's, It's all good. But look what Paul starts out with. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now that's the NIV translation. Some translations aren't quite that clear in separating the mind and the heart. Okay? I really like the NIV on it. It says you set your mind. What do you think of when you're talking about your mind? Your thoughts, your reasoning, your intellect. Is that all right? When you think of your heart, what normally comes to mind? Your emotions. So here Paul says you set your heart, your emotions on things above. But you also set your thinking and your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then you can do what verse 5 says you ought to do. Put to death everything in you that isn't right. Is that a good translation to verse 5? Would you accept that? It doesn't quite say that, but I think that's what it says, isn't it? Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now go down to verse 12. And some of your translations say, Now put on some other things. You put to death some things and you put on some things. You see, I can't put on a whole new way of thinking as a husband until I put to death some old ways. Is that right? Uh, for years, Shirley got after me about drinking... Uh, Diets, Diet Coke. Now I say I wasn't hooked, but I sure did like my Diet Coke. And she said, you ought not to drink that. Bad for your arthritis. So I quit drinking Diet Coke. And then somebody told me about Cherry Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and uh, I like my Cherry Dr. Pepper now. But I didn't like Dr. Pepper while I was hooked on my Coke. But boy, I, I enjoy that cherry Dr. Pepper now. In fact, I'm about to run out. I'm going to have to go to the store and get some more. We cannot put some new thoughts in us until we get rid of the old ones. Is that a good illustration? Husbands, you cannot treat your wife in the same way that Christ loves the church until you put to death some of those old things that maybe you grew up with or you, you've seen in practice in some other lives. But once you can put to death those things through the power of Jesus, then you can put on some new things. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? And your wife will be the better for it. So take, uh, take that whole passage in Colossians 3 if you need a guide. It says, put to death these things and put on these things. Now look in verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Wow. You mean I have to forgive you for whatever? Sure you do. What is forgiveness? Not holding a debt. Okay, not holding a debt against somebody? I'm saying that we understand that we have human failings. Okay, we, we do have human failings, don't we? When God forgives you, what does He say? What does He do? He says, I'll remember it no more. Woo! Hallelujah! Yeah. 
Lord, I'm so sorry. And you know what he says? It's already done for. Jesus has already cared for it, and I'm not even going to remember it. Aren't we glad? Now, what would happen if we could do that same thing with our mate? We'll talk about that a little bit later. What's the word intimacy mean? Be close to. Be close to? Intimacy. Intimacy. Say say that slow. Into me you see. Okay. Have you ever heard that before? Mm-hmm. Into me see. Is that a good thing or not? In one sense it is, because every husband and every wife needs to allow the other person to be able to see what's way down deep inside. Don't they? If, if they're not open to the point of allowing you to see, there's always something there between you, isn't there? There's always maybe a secret or maybe something that, that you don't want to share. And it isn't too long before whichever mate it is or it isn't, realize, you know, there's something hidden there, isn't there? There's some tension at that particular area. But intimacy is laying myself bare and uh, allowing the mate to see me just as I am. All the failures, all the, the yuck, But aren't we glad that Jesus has a way of taking care of all the yuck? Aren't we glad? I'm so glad that when Jesus takes care of whatever He needs to in one of our lives, in all of our lives, as as somebody's already said, He doesn't even remember it. And from that point on, I don't need to remember it anymore. Aren't we glad? Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. Let's talk about sex a little bit. Oh boy. Aren't you glad God gave sex? Amen. Yes. Sex is fun, isn't it? It's alright. It's alright. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 we're going to start with. In verse uh, verse 18. Let me read it. You follow along. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, why did I start there if we're going to read verse, chapter 7? Because now Paul talks about the whole area of married sex. Now, for the matters you were wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. Boy, he starts off on a negative there, doesn't he? It's good for a man not to marry. But since there's so much immorality, each man should take his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. 
In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent, and that only for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Okay? What is sex for? According to God's Word, in marriage. Bonding, coming together as one. What else? Pleasure. Pleasure. What else? Making babies. Yes, sir. He says, come together and multiply. Didn't God say that? Okay. Did you know that probably the sex act between a husband and a wife is the closest thing to define the relationship between Father God and Son Jesus and the church? Did you know that? God, through Christ, so desires such sweet communion and intimacy with you, the church, that, that the only thing we have in human understanding to compare it to is when a husband and a wife are really in love and they're sharing their lives sexually in intimacy. Now that doesn't mean that it's always a sex, the sex act. I'm not suggesting that. Because intimacy takes more than just the sex act, doesn't it? If it doesn't, you're going to be in trouble before long. Is, is that fair enough? But when sex, intimacy in sex between a husband and a wife is enjoyable for both persons, that's probably the closest thing that you can come to, to explaining and understanding a little bit about Christ and the church. Uh, does Jesus want sex with us? Not at all. Don't go out of here and say, I said that's part of intimacy with God, okay? But he wants such an intimate, close, tender, loving relationship with us that the only thing in our human understanding that we can compare it to is a husband and a wife that are totally in love with each other and are able to share that intimate relationship. Do you buy that? Is that all right? Am I, am I against Scripture? I don't think so. I don't think so. Show me, tell me afterwards if you think I am, okay? You see, Paul says in this passage that uh, sex or intimacy, I'm going to use the word intimacy, and he doesn't use that word in this passage. Uh, it's given for the purpose of communion, Mutual joy and pleasure in the bond of marriage. It's a duty both husband and wife accept to meet each other's needs and desires. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God provided that? It's a powerful symbol of the pure sharing of joy and delight in one another compared to Christ and His church. Any questions? 
how about let's take a 10 minute break or so and uh, the restrooms are just down the hall here to the right uh, let's come together in oh 10 minutes or so is that all right 15 let me suggest this if you come up to somebody you don't know say read their name and shake hands with them and say I'm so glad to meet you <laughs> There is, but I've seen somebody back there. They might be missing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was looking through it the other day. Yeah, they took a Common tone, essentially. Intimacy. aspect. That's right. Mary, I'm so glad did you guys get a blue sheet back here? Oh, 
Well, hey, gang, let's come on over and get started again, shall we? 
This thing's on, so it's just constantly Okay, you ready? Here we go again. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. All right. How many of you have had problems in your marriage? <laughs> All right, now let's just get some ideas of what some of the problems are. Give me one problem. Money. Money. Thermostat. <laughs> Thermostat. Speaking of, it's a heater mode. Yeah. 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 Really hot and cold. It's cold in here. Thermostat. Uh, Thermostat. Uh, 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 Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In-laws. Yeah. Fighting well. Fighting fair. Fighting fair. Conflict resolution. Communication. Value differences. Difference in value. The value system. Our convictions or whatever. That's a good start. Okay. <clears throat> Now, just an idea. How many of you had problems here? Okay. How many of you had problems here? Just the other day. Just the other day. How many here? 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 Looks like we're on the right track, doesn't it? <laughs> Okay, Shirley's been reading a book here that's just got some yeah. good stuff in it. How to Stop the Pain. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Don't and that's, like that? that's what it speaks to. And they're, they're little chapters, five, seven pages, 
And you can go back and read these things and think, oh, I read that thing, but my gosh. You know, wah! Who, you know. who wrote it? Uh, Richards, uh -huh. James Richards. Uh, Wayne ordered a couple, but Mary can get them over through the resource center. She can get them over there if you want one. Uh, but it's really, really speaks in plain language. What's the matter with us? Where do you get your worth? What do you like to do? What do you, what makes you feel good? What charges you up? Music. Music? music. Okay. Work. What? Work. Who said work? Okay, what kind of work? Just what you do as a living. Yep. Making something. Making Gardening. Gardening. We tend to get our worth from what we do, isn't it? That's really not where we get our worth. We just haven't been taught well in the church that our worth comes from God. He made us and he says we're all right. Now there are, he's, he thinks we're all right to a point and he loves us enough not to leave us where we are. But isn't that what we do? Oh, a woman gets her worth at home, what she does at home. Man gets his worth from his work, what he does. Well, yeah, to an extent. That's, that plays into it. But our worth comes from God because he says we're all right. I made you. And if we've accepted his son as being our savior, he said, you've got everything you need. I have provided everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. And we just don't quite believe it, do we? Self-worth is... It says, I am what God paid for me. Now, he paid quite a bit, didn't he? It cost him the only son he ever had. We make every decision in light of our sense of self-worth. Every decision that we make from the time we started making our own decisions. It comes from in the light of our own sense of self-worth. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not very good when we haven't learned it well. The greater our need for, for self-worth, the more hypersensitive we are to the actions of others. Oh boy. You mean if I don't think very much of myself, then every time my husband says something, you know, I take it wrong. Or you shouldn't have said that, you know. Thermostat. Just the other day, he wasn't feeling well. And I said, will you keep your hands off the thermostat? Either go put on some clothes or take some off. One, but quit fooling with the thermostat. <laughs> and that's the way, it, it, what he was doing to me, you know. Well, it affected me, yeah. But he was doing it for him because he was either hot or cold. But we're hypersensitive to that, aren't we? Oh, why do they always do that to me? You know, why did she do that? Why did she talk like that to me? What was she thinking? She probably wasn't thinking anything. And that's one of the good phrases. 
you'd be surprised how little people think about you. Not in value, but in time. They just don't think about you. They're thinking about themselves, usually. We can't rule the world as king's kids until you have a sense of dignity and worth. The self-worth issue is at the root of every decision and every action. Until the self-worth issue is settled, you will use people and events to bolster your struggling sense of worth. You perpetuate the, the judgment cycle. And that's me. I grew up that way. Boy, my mother was as judgmental as anybody ever come, and I followed right in her footsteps. I learned well because that's the way it went, you know. And I just, you know, I t say to Wayne every once in a while, when he's talking about some of his counseling sessions, I say, what's the matter with those people? Do they never think about anything? You know, just blunder through life, stomping on everybody and going through, you know, and well, I'm right and they're wrong, you know. Well, I can think things to death and never get anything done. But uh, you just, you ju I judge everybody. And, and that's a, mm, something that this little book has really challenged me on. You've got to stop that. That there's only one way, the life of love, that can deal with a life of judgment. Of, well, you know, they did that because well, she does that because she's so dumb, you know. Well, we attribute that to everything. And that's what I do. And I think, wow, I've got, and here I am all these years, and I've got a long ways to go yet because I haven't dealt with a lot of this stuff. When I seek to fix you, I have rejected you. Don't like you the way you are. I'm going to fix you. How many women got married beside, you know, early on and they were going to fix the man they married? I mean, you know, he's got some places he needs some tweaking. Well, he probably does, but not for you. You go in to read the, the parable about the log in your eye and the splinter in somebody else's eye. And you're told that until you get the log out of your own eye, you better not deal with the splinter in somebody else's eye. Well, that's the judgmental life. You're always judging somebody else with what's wrong with them. And until you begin to love them, you have no right to deal with people. Until you fix yourself, you can't fix somebody else. And, and you really ought not to try. The person who influences you most in life is not the person, who be, uh, not the person you believe in. It's the person who believes in you and sees your potential. Somebody who will stick with you, you can think back. What made that teacher so different in my life? Why do I remember him or her? Why did he take the time with me that he probably maybe didn't with somebody else in class? Because he saw the potential in you and he believed in you. And those are the people we will remember and make a difference in our lives. There's just a lot of little things in here. Uh, love is the key to anything. That's what scripture's all about, isn't it? 
we say, we quote it, oh, well, God is love, God is love. Mm -hmm. Well, if God is love, then if love will fix anything, that's great. But if love won't fix it, won't anything fix it? Not really. Nothing's going to fix your problem or your the issue you're dealing with in your own heart. If love won't fix it, nothing will. God's tried to tell us that for years. And I, you know, yep, I pick and choose. I tear out a page or I add a page or put in some footnotes or something, you know. And we really don't think we do that to, you know, oh, we don't do that. Yeah, we do. We tear out pages of scripture every once in a while that we don't want, we don't like. Well, I'll deal with that, you know. Hmm, yeah. And pretty soon we've got a mountain that we've got to climb. That we've got all these things that we haven't dealt with. And this is, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time because it talks to you right where you live and gives you some good ideas. Then he answers these questions. But you need to, you could really do well to read it. Don't you love my sweetheart? Yeah. How about let's teaching you how to fight? Is that all right? Fair enough. I believe that in order to succeed in your marriage, now you can take this in life too, you have to know how to fight. And I'm so sorry, but most Christians don't know how to fight. They've never learned. They've learned from mother and dad, and I'm not talking against your mother and dad. Please don't misunderstand me. But more than likely, they didn't know how to fight either. How many of you came from homes where mother and dad were divorced? Okay, more than half. Now, all you knew as you were growing up in that home was how they faced problems. Is that right? And if they got a divorce, you know it wasn't the exact, the right way to do it. Uh, in Matthew 19, turn there, would you please? Jesus is confronted. Now can't you just see the Pharisees come up to Jesus when he's told them that they need to love each other, be kind to one another and so forth. And they come up and say, almost shaking their finger in his face and says, how come Moses said we could get a divorce? How come Moses gave us a certificate of divorce, but you say we can't? That's kind of my translation of that. Is that all right? Now, what did Jesus say? Do you remember? He hates divorce. He hates divorce? It wasn't, that way at first. wasn't that way in the beginning? What else? Ah, he said there's only one out for marriage. And that's hardness of heart. Now, don't jump yet. Don't go down and tell Gary that I said it's all right to get a divorce, okay? Jesus said it was the hardness of heart that Moses or God allowed Moses to give a certificate of divorce for a couple to split. What is hardness of heart? 
Anger? Unforgiveness? Resentment. What? Resentment? Selfishness. Selfishness? Okay, directly related to the person's relationship with God, okay? The general answer is not obeying God's commandments. That's hard as a Okay. Disobedience. Anything else? Unyielding. Unyielding. Someone doesn't know how to love. Pardon? Someone doesn't know how to love. Somebody who doesn't know how to love. I think hardness of heart is everything except God's way. Hardness of heart is my way. I want my way. And you're not going to tell me otherwise. Any of you heard something like that in your marriage? Don't, don't be honest. I mean, don't let everybody know. <laughs> you see, hardness of heart is the, the, my definition of it. We want our own way. And I'm going to do everything I can to get my way, no matter what it is. If it means I blame you for not taking the trash out or whatever else, uh, that's hardness of heart because somebody says not love. Shirley talked about her, the book there, talks a lot about love. You see, hardness of heart is responding to somebody else in a way that is negative no matter how negative it is just a tiny little bit if I judge you because of something you did or didn't do that's hardness of heart why? because it wasn't what I wanted you to do does that make sense? you see I want my way don't I? Are you equating selfishness with hardness of heart? Sure. Sure. All the things that you all mentioned. You see, hardness of heart is wanting my way. Isn't it? No matter what it is that's involved. Now, we need convictions. I understand that. You know I believe in that. But when it comes to marriage, if there are problems in marriage, it's probably... I'd say 99% of the time it's because I didn't get my way or the wife didn't get her way because of hardness of heart I allow those things to be built up in my marriage I don't know how to fight to get rid of them. is that a fair enough statement I may have gone to church all my life but in most churches you don't learn to fight I'm sorry Maybe you learn to worship and all that, but many times they don't teach you how to fight, how to win. Is that too hard on the church? I believe it with all my heart. That's why we're in the ministry we're in. We want to help you to know how to fight so you don't need to give in to my way all the time. <clears throat> We're selfish people. Uh, when does selfishness first begin? No. You see, we're good learners, aren't we? 
what's probably one of the first words your little one uttered? No or mine. No or mine. It's meal. Meal. Okay. That's selfishness. It's, I want my way. I want to meet my needs. I want you to do everything you can to make me feel good. Now, when that's translated or carried over into marriage, and two people are doing it, what do you have? Time for it. Woo! Big time. And then you have a big knockdown, drag out, a big blow up, and you stew for a day or two and don't talk to each other. And then you finally decide, well, we better, we got to make some decisions, we better stop it. But you never deal with it. You should. Is that, is that fair enough? It's something that's swept under the carpet. If you have a carpet, whatever you use for a carpet, you, know, you get rid of it. You've you got to put it back there. We stuff it. You know what stuffing is, don't you? Uh, push it so you don't want to feel it. But it's not dealt with. And as long as it's not dealt with, given the right stimulus, what's going to happen? It's going to come up just like a volcano. Right? How many of you have had volcanoes in your home? Okay. Okay. Why? Because the hardness of heart has not been dealt with. Okay. I want you to look at some scripture with me. If you have your Bibles, fine. If not, we'll just give it first. Um, well, let, let me say this first. We have bought in to a counterfeit authority in many of our lives. And by that I mean we've come to believe that I am the final authority. What is good for me is best in the home. Now, I'm relating this mostly to the home. I've bought into the counterfeit authority that my way has to go. That's too bad, isn't it? Isn't that tragic? For me to place myself in such a position that I've got to de demand that my mate take care of me in so many words. That's, that's too bad. That's terrible. That's saying I'm on the throne. Do I believe in God? Sure. Have I asked Jesus into my life? Sure. Is he Lord of my life in everything? Probably not. I said at the funeral yesterday, I don't believe we can have Jesus as our Savior and not make him our Lord. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. If I ask Jesus into my life to be my Savior and forgive my past sin, I then need to make him the Lord of my life. Does that mean I'll never sin? No, not at all. But it means just like it says of King David, his heart was for God. You've made the commitment, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to please you. Will I fail once in a while? Yep. But that's where your forgiveness comes in. So, when we can get rid of the counterfeit authority that I'm best and it has to be my way, then we're on the road to the recovery, I think. Turn to 1 John 1, or 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8. And somebody read that, would you please? He who does what is sinful is of the devil, 
because the devil has been sending from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Somebody explain what that means, would you? How would you explain that in the passage? Somebody else. Well, it says that, that the sin for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so he's of the devil, but it's the devil's works that are being played out okay. in this person. It's coming okay. from him. What does the last part of that verse say? It says there that one of the main reasons Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. What are works of the devil? Remember all those things I wrote up here that we have problems with? Uh, those are all the works of the devil, aren't they? It says in that passage that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. True or not? You sure? Positive? You'd stake your life on it? When did he do it? Turn to Colossians chapter 2, would you? Now keep in mind, he came to destroy the works of the devil. From 1 John 3 8. Somebody read uh, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity. Bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Ah. Do you realize that Jesus was not head of all rule and authority from birth until he was baptized? Do you realize that? Now some of you theologians uh, don't shoot me down yet. Okay? When did Jesus start doing miracles? After he was baptized. Ah. We don't have him, no record that he did any miracles until his baptism. Is that right? Now look what happened when he was baptized. Here he comes in the water and John baptizes him. And what happens? What did, what did you see? Ah, the Holy Spirit came down. And at that moment, I think, was restored to him the head over every power and authority. Because the Bible says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. Do you remember that? He emptied himself and became a person. Part of that means that he left his, I don't know what it means, part of his glory. I, I, don't, I have a little, I don't understand all that. 
but he left part of the authority that he'd had when he was with the Father up there, wherever that is up there. He stepped down as a little baby. He was not head over every power and authority. But when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came on him, and at that moment, that was all restored. And he became head over every power and authority. Somebody read verse 15 of chapter 2, would you? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, here he comes now. He goes to the cross. Now he's already had power over the the enemy hasn't it? for three years more or less as he was ministering you see demons cast out of people you see life change you see dead raised and all that and so he's now playing out what verse 8 of 1 John 3 says he came to destroy the works of the devil okay when he died and rose again I think he's kind of have to put it all together I think they go together some way there now, from that moment on, he now says to the church, now you can carry on what I've been doing. Really? Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations here from verse 15, okay? Any of you ever been to a rodeo? Do you like rodeos? Yeah. Shirley and I are going to go to the rodeo in Fort Worth in February. I kind of like rodeo. I was born on a farm, and we're going to root right along with them, you know. I won't go ride with them, but we'll root with them. <laughs> Did you know that cowboys can put a wild bull in a chute and put a ring in his nose and snap a rope on that ring? They can let that chute open, and one cowboy can lead that bull around the ring. Did you know that? That's true. I've seen it done. I was uh, ministering to a couple, oh, it's been a year ago probably, 50, 55 years old, just an old cowboy. And I told that illustration. He says, that's right. That's right. I used to ride bulls. One person can lead that bull around the ring because he knows if he pulls, it's going to hurt his nose. I think Jesus put a ring in the devil's nose. And according to that passage, verse 15, he made a public spectacle of the, of the enemy. He's now leading him in front of the church and saying, look here, church, I've got him. I won. You don't have to fear him. Now, what did Jesus do when he disarmed the powers and authority? Now, some people say that he took the gun away from him. I don't think he did. Now, some of you may have heard this illustration before, but I kind of like it. I like guns. I, I'm a shooter whenever I can be. <laughs> and uh, I think that Jesus took the firing pin out of the devil's gun. Every gun, no matter what kind it is, has some kind of a piece of metal called a firing pin. You pull the trigger, the hammer lets go, it hits that piece of metal, it slides through another larger piece of metal, which in turn hits a shell, and it explodes. A gun will not fire if it doesn't have a firing pin. 
You believe that? <laughs> My son-in-law has a, his dad's old shotgun. And uh, it won't fire because the firing pin's broken. Jesus took the firing pin, I think, out of the devil's gun and he gave it to every Christian. He says, here, now you hang on to it. He gave the gun back. The enemy can still lie to us, try to manipulate us, try to get us to fall for his line. But as long as I've got the firing pin, he can't fire it. You believe that? That's true. Try it. You've got the firing pin if you have Jesus in your life. Now some of you may not know it. Whenever you fail though, it's because you've given the firing pin back to the enemy. And the gun has gone off. You bought into his lie. Just like the word I used earlier. We've taken a counterfeit authority and believe that I am my final boss. I have to have the last word. But I'm so glad that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. Aren't you? Now let's compare, let's apply that to marriage. Here's a marriage that's having difficulties. Hot, knock-down, drag-out arguments. Sometimes don't talk to each other for quite a while. If you have the firing pin, it means you've given the firing pin back to the enemy and he's been able to shoot you wherever wherever he did you can take the firing pin back though did you know that turn to Luke 10 19 would you please somebody read verse 19 Go ahead and read the next verse too. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay. Jesus says to those 72 or 70 disciples, not the 12, they'd already done it in chapter 9. But he set out 70 or 72 others and he says, I want you to go out and do the same thing you've seen me do. They go out and it, they must have had a ball. Because in verse 17, they come back and say, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. You can see that in verse 17. And Jesus said, yes, sir. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, every time you took authority in my name, Satan lost his grip in that person's life. Now hang on to that statement, will you? Apply it to your marriage. Your husband, you husbands and wives having disagreements and arguments and just really at each other. Every time you take authority in the name of Jesus, Satan has to flee. Every argument can be stopped at that moment. Now, if you still argue and still have hot times and things like that, it's because you're not using the ammunition that is yours to use. There's no other reason, I don't think. It's because I haven't accepted what Jesus has already given me. He says, I have, but not I will, in that verse, verse 19, I have given you authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. 
Did you know that husbands and wives don't have to fight? Did you know that? They don't have to fight. They don't have to be, they don't have to have hard disagreements. Is that good news? You don't have to get mad at each other. You can, but you don't have to. See the difference? Does that, does that sound good? You like that? Wouldn't it be great if every one of us here, everyone who's married here, begins today hanging on to the firing pin so that when there's an argument that could rise up its ugly head, together you can say, no sir, devil, you will not get the victory here. We have the authority of Jesus to tell you to get lost. Now get out of here. We're going to settle this with the things Jesus gives us. We're going to allow you to speak into our hearts and into whatever situation that is. Therefore, we're not going to allow you to defeat us. Wouldn't that be great? A week or two from now, you'd say, my goodness sakes, why didn't I start this sooner? Before long, some people would be asking you, what in the world happened to you? What's happened to your marriage? Wouldn't you like that? Now, so many Christians don't know how to fight. I'm sorry. That's what Shirley and I want to be involved in more than anything right now. It's helping Christians know they don't have to allow the enemy to defeat them. Let's go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Somebody read verses 3 to 5, would you please? Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Woo! That's a mouthful, isn't it? What's a stronghold? Anything that separates you from God? Okay, that's a good definition. Name a few. Smoking. Smoking. Anger. Anger. Liquor. Liquor. Resentment. Resentment. Drugs. Drugs. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Well, we can just go right down the line, can't we? Revenge. You see, a stronghold in my definition is it's a strong way of thinking that leads to a strong way of acting and reacting. Why does a husband get mad at a wife when some little thing happened? Because he's learned that. He probably learned it at home as a little boy. Maybe it's because of rejection. Maybe it's because he saw dad and mother fight that same way. I don't know. But it's developed in him a stronghold. A, a way of thinking that leads to a strong way of acting and reacting. What gets you in trouble most of the time? Your actions or your reactions? Many times it's the reactions. Just like that we react, don't we? Now that passage that was just read says, 
we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Surely not. Surely not. Let's take anger, for instance, okay? Uh, I don't know if some of you have an anger problem or not. But you know if you do, don't you? And your wife or husband knows if you do. Right? Anger is a stronghold. And it can so get a hold of a person that you respond just instantaneously almost. If somebody uses the right word or doesn't do the right thing, bang, you're at it. Now according to that passage, it says we have divine power. Where does divine power come from? God. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. Who does? Who? We do. Jesus doesn't do it? Ah, Jesus doesn't do it, does he? He allows you to do it. By using the authority he gives you as his follower, you can demolish that stronghold. Who can quote Romans 12 too? And we have been transformed by the of our minds. Okay, go ahead with the rest of that. Then we can test. Then we can test and approve what is God's perfect will. Amen. Okay, here we are. Romans 12.2 says, We are being transformed. That's a present active tense. We are being transformed. How? By the renewing of my mind. When I decide I'm not going to get angry again, if I say, boy, I'm never going to get angry again like that, you know what the devil does? We'll just see about that. We'll see about that. (laughs) Because we're making a vow, see? But if we say, Lord, thank you so much, you give me authority to break that stronghold in my life, I don't have to get angry again. In Jesus' name, I put it to death. Thank you, Father, for giving me that authority. Then you begin to change your mind about what that reaction needs to be the next time. Does that make sense? You see, God gives us all we need. It'd be so nice if He'd just slap us upside of the head with a two-before and say, come on, get with the program, I'll take care of it. But He doesn't. But He says, I have given you authority to do it. If you want to do it. Now, I don't know of any place that that needs to show up more than in marriage. Because think what, think what is... Yes? I just want to make a comment. And <clears throat> lots of times when we pray, we, we ask the Lord to do things for us. To do things for us. And He's already given us the divine authority, the divine yeah. power to do these things. And, you know, way back in, in Genesis, it says, you know, that that man is to take dominion. There's a certain amount of responsibility that we have to work this out, to, to, to take responsibility, take us personal responsibility to say, I need to get rid of these things. I need to replace them with what God has said. And as individuals, he gives us the responsibility to do that. I think one of the things that that is the biggest struggle is we keep asking God to do something for us that he's already put within us, and he wants us to work that out. How how many of you are guilty of that, what she just said? Well, God, uh, 
get, get rid of my anger. How many of you have prayed that in so many words? You know what God says? I think He says, I'm not going to do it. I already gave you divine power to demolish strongholds right there in your life. Just use what I gave you. I'm right there. do for us what we need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's our act of obedience to honor Him. You hit it. I think you hit it. It is, and it's like He's already... He, we ask Him for things that have already been accomplished on the cross, Amen. and now we have to walk in them. That's right. First John 3, 8. Remember, we read that earlier. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He did that on the cross in Colossians 2, didn't he? Verse 15. But, in Luke 10, 19, he says, Now I give you authority to make that a reality in your life. Uh-huh. I had a, for a few years, I had a recurring dream. And it happened just all the time. Uh, you know, like, talk just a little louder, Deborah. Years, would you? I had a reoccurring dream. And in the dream, I was people were coming to my house where I was being chased, and I would try to call dial 911 and the phone wouldn't work. Hmm. Or I'd get somebody and then all of a sudden we'd just get disconnected. And it just happened. And, and so I woke up, you know, in fear. Sure. Not, you know, so I knew it wasn't good. It wasn't good. But I kept having this recurring dream. And I went through prayer, you know, and some counseling and everything. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can't control your dreams, but God can. And then I had a, that dream changed. And I picked the phone to dial 911. And then I realized they weren't going to help me. Then I needed to help myself. And so I put the phone down. And then some big guys came in the house. And there was one really... There was a taller one that was taller than the rest of them, and the Lord showed to me that was a strong man. And I just started, I got a bag full of balls and was just swinging them around. They were real heavy lead, and just started knocking them all out, and just getting them and getting them. And then on the way out, there was one that was really hard to get rid of, and I just kept fighting. He knocked me over, and I just kept fighting and fighting, and then they all ran out the door, like, with their tails on me, you know, just left. Thank and you, Jesus. I never had that... After that, I never had that reoccurring dream again. Amen. And the Lord Amen. revealed to me what the truth of that was, that, you know, he's given me, he's heard me, he mm -hmm. always hears me, mm -hmm. but he wanted me to step up to the plate right. and use the authority that he's already given me. And then I read that book, The Authority of the Believer, mm -hmm. which was real good timing. The whole thing was really good, but, you know, it just really changed. I tend to be a visual person, so the Lord will give me lots of visual things, like you were saying, to visualize certain things yeah. that really is helpful. But Praise the Lord. Really went along with that. That's exactly what I'm talking about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Who's the author of that? The Authority of the Believer. Andrew you know, Womack. It's an old Womack. Andrew Womack. Yes. A Andrew Womack. There's an older version, and then there's a newer version. Okay. I think that um, another pastor has... Um, what's his name? Hagee? I think yeah. Pastor Hagee. John Hagee took that okay. and kind of revised it. But it's a really, really, just really basic meat that you want. It's real good. Uh, I like that. Every night before Shirley and I go to sleep, we pray, Lord, you give us dreams and visions now. 
We don't need those dreams of the enemy. We don't need those insinuations that the enemy puts in your mind. You see, most, many times, let me say many, not most, many times you don't learn how to fight at church. I'm so sorry. Is that right? No, you're always told to make peace and yeah. have harmony and stuff yeah. like that, but you can't have peace unless there's unity, yeah. there's agreement. <laughs> and you see, when you learn how to fight, when you learn that Jesus has already accomplished it on the cross, now He gives you authority to be able to walk it out, whatever you need. Then you can walk in victory in your family, in your home, in your marriage. Does it mean you'll never have an argument? No, no. But it means you don't have to have an argument. You can come to a conclusion. You can allow the Holy Spirit to so use that relationship with you and your mate that you take the authority that's needed and walk in victory. Don't you like that? You see, God did not leave us helpless. And so many Christians are walking around helpless. They don't know that they don't have to. Uh, what we try to do, what Shirley and I try to do is help people realize the bondages that they've come up in and realize they don't have to continue in those. So through the power of the Spirit, break those bondages, cast them out of a person's life, get rid of them so that then they can walk in freedom. Boy, we're having more fun. It's so, so much fun to see some lives change when they realize, you know, I've been put putting up with that all my life and I don't need to any longer. Thank you, Lord. So break it in the name of Jesus. Begin to use Romans 12 too, as, as Anthony quoted, I am being renewed. I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind. Then I can test what God's good and perfect will is. Let me explain that just a little bit. Uh, you see, God's got a good and perfect will for every one of us, doesn't He? He knows what it is. Many times we know what it is, but we haven't gotten there yet. So, little by little, as I put to death, or as I take the authority Jesus gives me to say, in the name of Jesus, you unclean spirit of anger, or whatever we're dealing with, get out of my life in Jesus' name. You've already been defeated on the cross by Jesus. He's given me authority to take care of you. Now get out in Jesus' name. You don't have to yell, but you do have to use authority. Does that make sense? You say that, you, put the, you close the door. Father, in Jesus' name, I close the door to my spirit of anger. It's out in Jesus' name. Now, I re begin to renew my mind with your strength and your help and your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And you keep alert. You're learning how to fight, you see. Mean you'll never lose your temper? No. No, but it means you know you don't have to now. Questions? Let's talk about communication just a minute. Look at this formula. I didn't come up with this. Somebody else has. But I like it. Let's say the 100%, that's total communication. 
of that, 7% are words. 38% is the tone of voice and 55% is the language. Now, the body language, I'm sorry. Okay, let's look at that. Uh, You tell somebody to go take a hike. (laughs) Okay, Tony, go take a hike. Now, that's words, but those don't mean as much. Tony, I said go take a hike. Okay, see the tone of voice or the body length. Get out of here, Tony. Go. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Tony. I was expecting to get up. Does that make sense? Now, if you can keep that in mind, the words you say aren't really the most important part of that communication. It's how you say it, the tone of voice, and the body language that goes with it. Uh, I'm not picking on anybody, okay? Because I don't know what you do. How many of you, when your mate says something to you and you don't quite agree, all right. How many of you ever use that? What part of language, what part of communication is that? Body language. Body language. Is that much more important than the words that were said? Sure it is. Because what does it communicate to the one that just said the word? I don't want to hear that. You're wrong. Why in the world did you pick on me this time of day? Right? Even even easier when you tell your kids something. I said you were not to do that again. But until your voice level rises to a certain level and you start out of your chair, they don't move. But once you raise your voice and you start getting up out of your chair, they'll run. (laughs) But not until... They see the tone of voice and the body language. Mm-hmm. It's like your dogs. Yeah. Well, I thought of a remember we talked about that. I just remember a game I used to play with my dog is I would tell her to come here, but I'd yell at her mm-hmm. so she'd go away. Yeah. Or I'd tell her to go away, but I'd be real nice. She'd come. Like the tone, yep. you could control it with the tone yep. rather than the words. That's that's a good illustration. <laughs> Animals know better than we do, don't they? You know, let me make this suggestion for all of you who are married. You have a refrigerator, don't you? Make you a little poster. Communication. 7% words. 38% tone. 55% body language. Keep it there so you can see it. How many times do you look at the refrigerator? Now, if that's there, and you've just had an argument with your mate, you don't want to read it, so you're going to open the door and get what you need and not look at it, are you? Make the commitment. Uh, That's going to mean something to me, Lord. Thank you. Learn to be a good listener as well as a good talker. Uh, How many of you would say, now just be honest here, okay? How many of you would say you really, really listen to your mate? Some of you do. How many of you 
mates, all of you, how many of you mates would say, my mate doesn't really listen to me? Uh, what are you going to do about it then? Pray. Now, you can pray. <laughs> pray. That's a good start. Isn't it? You can say, oh, why don't you ever listen to me? Or you can say, you know, I feel like that uh, I'm not getting through at times. How can I help you to understand what I'm trying to say? If you could work it out together, would that be better? If you could agree with each other, I mean really agree with each other, it's all right for you to hold me accountable. Now we're going to talk about that next couple hours, so I won't talk about that. Uh, learn to be a good listener and a good, as well as a good talker. Desire the joy of communicating and connecting together. Uh, what it means to uh, hear what somebody else is saying. And the number one thing that just kept coming up after the study was that you have to be able to validate people's feelings and, and empathize with where they're coming from. You don't necessarily have to agree with them because if you're not feeling the same way, you know, you can't agree with them, but you need to at least say, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. I understand what you're saying is that you feel angry or that you feel lonely or you whatever it is. And that, you know, you need to speak that and you need to express some you know, attention towards that. The, that's what listening is. It's a body language. It's the, not just words. How many of you agree with what she just said? Uh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You said it in a good way. Yeah. Now, Sometimes, though, if both of you aren't committed to good communication and you say, well, I feel like I know um, I think I know how you feel. What's the response of the other person if they've had if you've had troubles there before? Oh, you don't know how I feel at all. Is that right? It may take some time. But if you're both committed to it. It can be built. It can be rebuilt. You didn't get where you are overnight. You probably aren't going to get where God wants you to get overnight. However, it begins when you decide together, we're going to begin to communicate with God's grace and help. Is that all right? Handling conflict. Did you know it always takes two to fight? Doesn't it? It always takes at least two to fight, doesn't it? What's the matter, Holly? It just reminded me, I fight a lot with my husband in the car by myself. Okay. So I don't need him there. I will talk to myself, <laughs> and I'll say, and then another thing that makes me so mad is this and this. And I forgot one day that my daughter was in the back seat, so I'm having this argument <laughs> in the car. And pretty soon she says, Mom, who are you talking to? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm just talking to myself. I'm having this argument. With one, and he wasn't in the car. <laughs> you might want to try journal. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. <laughs> oh, anybody else have that? I, that. 
you can talk to your mate pretty well as long as he or she isn't there. <laughs> so you get to talk. That's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does take two people to make a marriage, doesn't it? Now, you know that as well as I do. It takes two people to succeed in marriage. Now, by the word succeed, I'm not saying you just live together and got the same last name and have kids together. But you're happy, you're joyful, you're, you're seeing progress as a couple. You're in, trying to be in tune with each other. You're sharing your love and your intimacy and your communion together. Uh, I had a big, busy week last week. Some of you know this, but I got a call about uh, 11.15 that, uh, a week ago last night that uh, somebody did. 28-year-old boy killed himself. And uh, I was the pastor on call. Uh, so I was there in a little bit and uh, spent many hours with that family. And I was worn out. And uh, <clears throat> I knew I had this today. But I came home from the funeral yesterday afternoon and I said, Shirley, we got to do something. We've got to just get out. I didn't know what we were going to do, but I just was to the point I had to stop thinking about all that stuff. And uh, she was so gracious that her feet hurt and she was tired, but uh, we just, we drove the streets of uh, the Highlands. Just saw the store, and then we finally went in a couple, but uh, then we had supper together. But uh, it was such a sweet time, I thought. She was ready to meet my need of just being together. And uh, sometimes that's all it takes, is you know your mate is wanting to meet your need. Now, wouldn't it be great if each one of you, husband and wife, knew that on a regular basis. That your mate wants to meet your need. Wouldn't that be great? You yeah, get excited. Something here. When he spends three days a week down here from nine to six, seven, talking with people like this all day, he's talked out and again someone. So how do I respond? Well, he comes in and immediately sets down his recliner and goes to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I turn, I take my hearing aids out and turn the volume up on the football game. I'll show you. you know, listen to this. He, he hates football. <laughs> but I've learned to watch it. <laughs> I only turned off when my team's getting beat. <laughs> I went to bed last night. <laughs> so who's your team? Who's your team? K State. Oh. We're both from Kansas. I guess they. Lo I didn't see the final score. They did lose. They were, 
Yeah. You see, we don't have it all together after 56 years. We're further along than we were. Uh, for several years, I was going to win the world. So I didn't have time for the family. Be careful. Dad and mother, both of you. Don't, don't get that attitude. It won't work. Shirley had told me for years that you're going to lose the kids. And uh, I said, oh, no, no, they'll understand. And it wasn't until our senior, we were in Ecuador, and our older boy was a senior in high school. God really got through to me and said, you got to change or you're going to lose him. So uh, I had to break some strongholds in my life and uh, begin some new thought patterns and new action patterns. And uh, the Lord used it, praise the Lord. We're very, very close now. Can I make a comment? Uh-huh. You said that in your mind, you were thinking that your family would understand. Yeah. Oh, they'll understand, they'll understand. And to me, I think that that is, that's one of those things that we kind of talk to ourselves and kind of deceive ourselves. That's exactly right. You know, if, if we knew we were being deceived, we would be deceived. Right. You know? And I think when we, when we say those things out loud, I think we need to kind of think about that and go, yeah. okay, wait a minute. Let me just think about what mm -hmm. I just said. You're right. Mm -hmm. I used the word counterfeit authority, remember earlier? That's one of those places where we want my way. Yeah, but God had called me, you know. Surely my family will understand. That Somebody doesn't... asked me why I was going to be a missionary. I said, I don't want my husband to go off and leave me. Because that's where he was going. Yeah. Yeah, I've been called to be a missionary a whole lot. Probably Longer a lot than I had. Before he was. But I had other things. I had a family to take care of now. And, you know, living here or living in Ecuador, we dealt with the same problems. Some of them were just poorer than others. But uh, why do you want to go to South America? Well, I don't want my husband to go off and leave me. Because that's what he would have done in those days. And in he those days, I was going to do it. Yeah. So, you see, I've learned through the years. <coughs> You got to change some things. Wonder how Moses' wife felt. Yeah, because he was gone a lot. He was gone a lot. That's right. That's right. Uh, this isn't on your agenda, but let's continue on that just a little bit. Uh, we've talked to a lot of missionaries. Now, Gary knows this, so you don't. You can tell Gary if you want to. But I'm not sold on lots of missionary organizations because they almost require that you send your kid to boarding school and uh, that's the way the mission organization we were with did and uh, the place where I was beginning to change uh, we finally said no sir we're not going to do that if we have to do that we're going to come home so we're not going to separate our family and uh, that was probably one of the biggest decisions I ever had to make regarding our family. And you know, the, the mission understood, and they moved us up to where the school was, and we had a great time the next few years in Ecuador because everybody lived at home. And it was good. 
but uh, I believe that there are several mission organizations that don't take into account the family. Well, you got a call from God. You got to go and do what He tells you to, regardless of what your family says. That's of the devil, folks. Don't forget that. Now, some of you are missionaries, I know. But keep in mind that uh, God made the family before He made missions. Right? He didn't talk about missions back in Genesis 1 and 2. He talked about the family. Then He said, now, win people to me, Jesus says in Matthew 8, 28. Somebody had their hand up. Sure. I was, I was just going to make that comment that your family is your number one mission. Yeah. You're raising up your children in the way that they should go. And, and yeah. you know, part of your ministry is your family. Part of missions is your children, the next mm-hmm. generation. And they need to experience that love within a family and, you know, with godly examples and godly unity and, and all those things. If it can't be in the home right there, how can it be outside? Yeah. And, and all I'm saying is that uh, uh, I'm so glad for missions. Please don't misunderstand me. We're, we're missionaries at heart. But if there's not the right priority, uh, you're going to have trouble with your family. We got people here at Grace Church that uh, their kids grew up on the mission field, and some of them are basket cases today. I'm sorry. Uh, and I know there were a lot of circumstances involved in all of them, but somewhere along the line, we have to do what you've said there, Sherry. Our family has to be first. If it isn't, you're going to pay the penalty in years to come. You did a lot of work out in the country. I did a lot of work at home because I had a lot of the kids who came to our place to stay from from the dorm where they were sent to foreign school. Some of them, same family. Some kids can make it fine. Doesn't, they don't bat an eye over. Other kids, it makes a basket case out of them yeah. that, that falls them right into adulthood that they just need to be home with somebody. And I had a lot of kids that, I guess maybe they didn't, many of them stay overnight too long, but were back and forth every day because they, they had to be somewhere besides where they were. They couldn't take it anymore. We've seen little first and second graders sent away to boarding school and they'd cry and cry and cry. Mm-hmm. You said they were even siblings one would do fine and one wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, it's a difference in people and how you handle things. But, and, and when they become adults, some of them are still a basket case with, with problems that they've had, but they've brought them from their childhood. Mm-hmm. Other kids in family, well, you know, that didn't bother me. We've heard our own kids say, well, that didn't really bother me. But some of them, it really did. There was certain things that would happen, you know. Uh, you can't tell. God makes everybody an individual, and we better make sure that we can take that individual in. Now, please don't go out of here and say we're anti-mission organization, okay? Because we're not. I'm envious of everybody who goes to the field. We came home on furlough, and I got sick, and we couldn't go back. And uh, that was a hard thing. And I, they asked me to counsel some of the missionary kids 
at the headquarters. And so we adult kids. Adult kids who had been grown up on the mission field and they were hurting, but we'd come to the place of making some decisions that the mission kind of changed their policy by then. But missionary kids hurt many, many times because I think there's two commandments. One great commandment and one great commission. Remember? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the great commission? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If the great commandment is not being fulfilled, the great commission will fail, I believe. that makes sense? Somebody had a hand up here, I think. Yes, horse. That's that's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 And it'll happen to any family unless I think dad has the responsibility of making family first. Now that doesn't mean he has to loaf at work. But it means mother and daddy are united together and they're in it as a family, but dad has been given the responsibility of being the head of the home. If he doesn't accept that responsibility, there's going to be problems. Yes or no? Absolutely. I see it all the time. Now, let's, uh, I think we're going to quit. There's lunch down there pretty soon. Any questions? Do this between now and we meet again. I think we're supposed to start about 15 to 1 again, aren't we? Uh, think about some questions you'd like to ask. And uh, what we were going to plainly do with the three couples, we were just going to field some questions and try to give you what we, how we did, whether right or wrong. Is that all right? So maybe you can learn from our mistakes. Okay? How's that sound? Let's pray together. If you're at a place where you're close enough, hang on to hands with somebody, would you? Around the table, just go ahead and grab people's hands there. Lord, just bind us together now in unity. I thank you so much for each one here, Lord. We all come from different backgrounds. We've got a lot of baggage, every one of us. But thank you, Father, that you specialize in setting us free from baggage. So right now, give us a good time of fellowship around the table. We bless you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.